Good morning, everybody. Good to be back with you. Thank you all for your, your prayers. First of all, for our, for our Kenya mission team, we look forward to sharing some more detail. I know we shared some last Sunday night of some of the things that we saw and experienced and what God did, but we'll be sharing a little bit more completely in a few weeks on a Sunday night upcoming. So thank you for our prayers, your prayers for our team and, and for me personally, just, uh, just recovering from this bit of eye surgery. So Thank you for that. It's good to be back. Um, feels a little weird, like I don't know what I'm doing up here. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with my hands now. But no, I'm glad that you're here today. Before I begin this message, I wanted to share something with you of importance that's in your bulletin today. It's a, it's a big shift, so it's worth this partial time out in the service just to draw attention to it, because I want you to know and be able to be aware of what's coming and some of the opportunities that are going to be happening. Uh, you'll see something in your bulletin called a Calvary Fall Schedule. And so I just want to remind you of a couple key ingredients to that schedule. Um, beginning the weekend after Labor Day weekend, so it'll be the second Sunday night in September, we will begin our every Sunday night worship gatherings. It'll be here in the sanctuary. So we'll be in here every Sunday night. Um, it, the only times we'll not be, we'll let you know if there's, a, if there's a holiday or an event that would preclude it. But otherwise, our normal schedule will be Sunday nights at 5 o'clock. And that's a church-wide family service. Um, Childcare will be available for just those in preschool, but we want you to bring your family with you and enjoy worship and singing and scripture and prayer and reports from our missionaries and just a good time of, of church family life. Happening also in the fall is a shift on Wednesday nights. So there are some small groups, some of your life groups will begin meeting on Wednesday nights. You'll know that shift already from your life groups. That's only a few. Uh, some have decided to do that. Some D groups will be continuing to meet on Wednesday nights. But the big change is this. The open classes that we um, initiated on Sunday mornings we're also going to be offering in the fall on Wednesday nights. So if you saw one of those open classes and you wanted to be a part of that but you weren't able to because of either your commitment to service and ministry in some area on Sunday mornings or because of your life group meeting on Sunday mornings and you'd like to avail yourself of those, there are opportunities to do that. And so you'll see the full schedule here. Some of those uh, classes will be offered both on Sunday nights, I mean, I'm sorry, Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, you'll get to choose. There is an open class for women in the book of Romans. You'll be receiving more information about that and how to sign up. There is a, a book that you'll need, a textbook for that, a course book for that. There's an open class for men and their sons on purity. And then there are several doctrinal theological classes. And so the hub on Wednesday nights previously has been a Wednesday night adult Bible study and then other activities. So that Wednesday night adult Bible study is giving way to multiple open classes. So you'll see here where those are taking place. If you're an adult coming for open class on Wednesday night, we will gather now down at the Rock. And so you gather in that Rock lobby, we'll make some announcements, we'll share what the classes are that night, and then we'll break up into these smaller groups. So if you have any questions about that, um, I'll make it easy on myself. Direct those to Dan Tankersley. Before I share this message with you today, I want to summarize it really in a simple statement. And everything else I'm going to say today, hopefully, ideally, if I stay on track, is going to flow from this one statement. But the essence of what I want you to hear today is this. Never be ashamed of being a child of the King. And if your allegiance to King Jesus should cost you something in this world, some matter of persecution or some manner of suffering, just be glad that you're able to suffer for his name. Count that as a privilege and know that Jesus is worth it. 
Never be ashamed of being a child of King Jesus. And if that faithfulness, that allegiance should cost you something, be glad. Because Jesus is worth it. And and truthfully, I can't even imagine, I can't fathom the alternative to that. I can't think of many worse statements in Scripture than this one. One of the ones that just sort of reaches out and grabs you, as it were, by the collar or even by the throat. And that's Luke 9, 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Let that settle in for a moment without commentary. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Greg Morse of Desiring God wrote an article about this text. And in that article, he says this, try to imagine it. The day has come suddenly like a thief in the night. The angels, too numerous to count, too wonderful to anticipate, too other to feel at ease among, now encompass the earth. Some surround Christ blazing as far as fires. Others bellow loud praises to God and to the Lamb. Still others flash forth as lightning, blowing trumpets and summoning the world to account. And then you see him, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, draped in the glory of his Father, charioting the clouds. He approaches the world of men. He's adorned in blinding light, dressed for war, a sword protruding from his mouth. The great spectacle the great reckoner, the one by whom and for whom all exists, docks his boat upon the shore. The eyelids of this world will pull back. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All activity apart from him will stop. Atheism and paganism and false religion will cease to be. He has come. In this landscape filled with angels, God, and men, slumped between the true saints and the brazen unrepentant, would be those who knew enough to truly follow him but never did, the blushers. They knew Jesus to be who he said he was, but they did not own him. They visited him only at night but wouldn't appear with him in the daylight. When the question was put to them before men, devils, those they admired or feared, they could not speak with Luther, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me. They kept what they took to be their personal convictions and would not confess him. And there they stand, alongside the great gathering of all who ever lived. The king looks down at them as they looked upon him, but with holy embarrassment and godly shame. They lived ashamed of him, and now Jesus is ashamed of them before his Father and this heavenly assembly. They denied him, and now they are denied. Depart from me, you cursed, he will say into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. May that never be true of any of us gathered here today. Let's pray. Father, visit us in the power of your Holy Spirit today that we might encounter you in your word, words of life and light, that you would make plain What I might, or in our own thinking, we might make unclear or uncertain. 
Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring every truth to bear to every individual in this room, to every doubt, to every bit of unbelief, to every fear and worry. Father, I pray that you would make yourself known in a way that would be for us unmistakable, even inescapable. And Father, I pray as you reveal yourself through your word by the power of your spirit, that you would move us to obedience, to action, to faith, to certainty, to endurance. And Father, may we forever be found among the company of the proud, not proud of ourselves, not proud of our goodness, not proud of our actions or even our faith, but proud of our Savior, proud to be identified with him who saves us and who will save us. Father, may we be fearless. May we be confident. May we be faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we pick up where we left off last week in verse 8. So we start this message today with the word therefore. So maybe make a little mental mark, a mental note, or even a physical one in your notes. We're going to revisit what the therefore is therefore. But let's read the text together first, I mean, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. For context's sake and faithfulness to the text, let's pause on that word therefore just for a moment. All the encouragements, all the admonitions, all the challenges presented to us in this text follows that therefore and the promise that we found in last week's text in verse 7. Therefore is centered around these words. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It might be natural to someone like Timothy, as you heard described last week, relatively young, inexperienced, by all appearances in the text, did not have that natural ability that humans might seek, people might seek. He might not have been the first choice of any search committee, any search process. He seemed to tend towards shyness, maybe a little bit of, of fearfulness, maybe a little bit of uncertainty. That might have been his natural bent. But what Paul was telling him by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that's not God's bent. And Timothy, God didn't choose you because you had everything that it takes to be successful. God chose you because he has everything that you need for you to be successful. What I want for you is to be faithful to me. I want you to be diligent in the scriptures. I want you to honor your, your family history and, and what you've been taught and grown up in. I want you to fan into flame this gift that I've given you, and I'll do the rest. You trust me. 
But God has not given us the spirit of fear. In fact, if 2 Timothy chapter 1 is gentle, it has a companion passage that is very direct and far more pointed. Revelation 21 verse 8 speaks of those who would be bent towards fearfulness. Just in case you think that's not such a, a big deal. What's the problem here? Revelation 21.8 says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Do you see the correlation there? The worst sort of evils that you can imagine, God equates with those who are cowardly. And what sort of, sort of cowardice is he talking about? He's talking about the same sort of cowardice that was addressed to Timothy. God has not given you a spirit of reticence or reluctance or fearfulness, but of power, love, and soundness of mind or self-control. So he says, tend this fire of God's work of grace in you. God is doing this, but fires that go untended tend to go out. You know how that works. But if you want to see God at work, and if you want to see God working in your life, and you want to see God accomplish things in your life, and you want to stay strong and healthy, if you want to grow into maturity, then you work at it, you fan that into flame. You tend that flame every day. You add what's needed. You protect it from what would detract from it, and you keep that flame burning brightly. And that's the challenge of verse 6, that we would burn brightly. So Paul tells Timothy, be confident in this. Be confident of what God has given you. That God has given you the power to accomplish what He wills. You want to do the things God wants you to do? You want to pastor this church in a city like this? A city that's almost exclusively pagan? A a, a city where you're not just a cultural minority. You're a distinct religious minority. In a city where you're not just going to be a different religion. You're going to be an opposed religion. You're going to be an illegal religion. You're going to be in a, a mocked and ridiculed religion. I will give you the power to accomplish what I want you to do. And I will give you the love. I will provide the love to desire what I want you to do. I will give you that. That's what God promises us, that he gives us both the power to do what pleases him and the desire to do it. I'm going to instill in you a desire to keep going, to love what I love, to want what I want. And I'm going to give you the self-control, Timothy, to be faithful to the end. I'm going to give you the power to do what I want you to do. I'm going to give you the desire to want what I want for you. And I'm going to give you the self-control to be faithful. So Paul is telling a a young man like Timothy, the same message he's giving to all of us as followers of Christ. God did not choose us. God did not call us because of the abilities that he saw in us, but because of the abilities he offers to us by his Holy Spirit. He's not reliant on us in any way. He's reminding us to be reliant on him in every way. So remember, you are whomever whomever God enables you to be. That's the message to Timothy. If you look at Timothy's life and you say, oh man, he was a surefire winner. This guy's a first-round draft pick. You know he's going to make it. He's a superstar. That's not what you would have said. But it's the work of God in him. God enables you to be who he wants you to be, and God enables you to do what he wants you to do. So fan it into flame. All of us have that responsibility. God provides the power. God provides the desire. God, by his Holy Spirit, is working in us those disciplines of self-control 
so that we might walk by the Spirit, but our responsibility is to work that flame, to fan this into flame for faithfulness. And here's what we do have control over, and this is where we shift. Paul is telling Timothy, God's going to provide this for you, but this you've got control over. This you have responsibility for. And it's the two strong encouragements that he gives to Timothy. Really, this passage of Scripture is fairly simple. There are two imperatives, two commands. Not just for Timothy, not just for that person and that time and that place. But for every believer since, these two encouragements are these. Number one, Timothy, proudly identify with Christ, the crucified, risen, and coming king, and identify with his church. Proudly identify with him. You're going to be addressing a culture that will be partially Jewish. To that Jewish culture, they're going to think that this message of Christ is a foolish message because no real representative of God, no real prophet of God would suffer the horrific death, the humiliating death of a criminal on a cross. It's foolishness to them. To the Gentile world, to this pagan world with all of its different religions and its religions of power and influence, religions of, of gods that really look much more like developed people than they do of other, completely otherness of God. He said to them it, it, will, it will be a stumbling block to them. Crucified, Christ crucified, identify with him. Be bold in your identification. Proudly identify. Don't be ashamed of being a follower of Christ. And Paul said, by extension, don't be ashamed of me. Identify with me. Yes, I'm in prison. Remember the context of this letter? It's Paul's last. The last words Paul's ever going to write. And he writes them from a prison on the cusp of his own death. He says, don't be ashamed of me. I mean, I know there will be a tendency to try to separate yourself, disconnect yourself from me in that sort of radicalism, that, that version of Christianity, that version of Christianity that will go all the way to death for the sake of faithfulness. But don't. I'm not here as a victim. I'm here in victory. I'm where God wants me to be, and I'm doing what God wants me to do, and I'm going to celebrate all that God has promised for me, so proudly identify. Now listen, I know in so many conversations and interactions with people that far too many of us have our reasons, and I use that word in mental quotation marks, for not identifying with Jesus, for going undercover, for keeping it quiet, for not letting people know, in, unless we just absolutely have to, where we stand or who we're with. You know, I hear people making these sort of comments all the time. You know, Christianity's been too politicized, and you know, I don't want to identify with that. I don't want to do, identify with this political party, this political movement. And we fall for that ridiculous ruse that just keeps us quiet about what matters most. We don't want to be offensive to people. As if not being offensive would be the greatest gift we could offer when the far greater offense will be those people who knew us one day, looking at us at that time of the return of Christ, saying, you knew this and you didn't speak of it? We think that winsomeness will win them over, just by simply being nice. But there's probably not one of us in this room that doesn't know someone, have a close friend even, maybe a family member, maybe even your own brother or sister, that is a super nice person, and they're lost as can be. And being nice changes nobody's life. Some of us wrongly, and we've been taught this way, uh, granted, to just let our actions speak. You know, I'll just let my actions speak. I'll just be, I'll be a good person. I'll be an honest person. I'll be a decent person. I'll let my actions speak. But every generation, every generation, since the birth of the church has required bold witness, 
And when I say bold witness, I mean verbal witness, courageous, faithful, verbal witness. There has never been a time in the history of the church in 2,000 years, nor will there ever be a time where simply doing good things will give witness to the gospel. The gospel requires more. It requires words. This is who God is. This is what we have done against a holy God who will one day judge. This is what sin requires of us. But this is what God offers us in Christ. And this is what you must do in response. And this is the truth and this is good news. And when I talk about boldness today, I'm not sure how you're perceiving that. These challenges to courage and boldness that we see Paul giving Timothy. We're not talking about, from a biblical standpoint, personality traits. Not everyone in this room is naturally bent towards outspokenness and boldness. And that's fine. What we're talking about is conscious decision to be faithful. We're talking about an urgent conviction prompted by the Holy Spirit that calls us to respond, to speak, to act when there is a threat, when there is an opposition. And some of those in this room, some of the people in this room that you would perceive as being courageous and bold will cower in that moment when the challenge is to be faithful to Christ. And some of those in this room that you would consider to be so shy or withdrawn, the introverts, will in that moment step up and proudly identify with Christ. It's not about personality. It's about spirit-empowered conviction, spirit-driven courage, spirit-prompted urgency. Again, let me read you a section from Morse's article. He said, The temptation to be ashamed of Jesus appears pre-baked into our seemingly post-Christian culture. I've sometimes wondered if many of the cowardly, those who were ashamed of Christ and refused to pick up their crosses to follow Him, ever considered themselves so. Certainly, if the grand moment of decision arrived, the gun is pointed at the head, or like Peter, the servant girl raises her voice in public accusation, well, then compromise would be obvious. But how many of the cowardly, according to Revelation 21.8, that go to the second death unrealizing, did not feel the thud at the bottom of the cliff, but instead walked the scenic, gentler slope of a quiet, more habitual compromise? Most of us do not face a cliff, he said, but a soothing slope of small denials. We deny him in peaceful conversations around many fires. Our embarrassment is the fixed blush on the cheek, the accumulation of small moments in which we harmlessly choose love for reputation, love for self-esteem, love for ease, love for money, love for our own lives, over the love of Christ and the love of souls. We don't speak much of Jesus. We take the path of less awkwardness. We fit in more and more and more with unbelieving friends and co-workers. We don't go there, quote-unquote, with our unbelieving families we did before. Our neighbors don't know we're Christians, and our own family often wonders. To Timothy and to us, the Holy Spirit says, do not be ashamed of me. Do not be ashamed of my salvation. There's never been a time, in case you think you're living in a particularly difficult time to be a Christian, in case you think that gives us cause to shrink back, if that gives us the rationale or the exception or the excuse to not be bold because what's hard now, you know, people don't want to hear that now. People will shut you down now. People will mock you now. You, you'll get shut out of public spaces like social media or 
You might be called into HR at work, or it's not like it used to be, like you don't understand. For those of us who have these subtle presuppositions that it's just worse now than it's ever been, consider the first century in Timothy and pagan Ephesus where people will die for their faith. Consider Christians in other places and countries who will boldly gather for the sake of Christ, regardless of cost. Persecution, listen to what I'm about to say. Persecution, to some degree, is inevitable for every true and faithful Christian. No, I, I, didn't, I didn't overreach there. That's not an overstatement. It's not an exaggeration. Persecution, to some degree, is inevitable for every serious Christian. And for some, genuine suffering is possible. But if you take seriously the call to be faithful to Christ, if you take seriously the requirement of God to identify proudly with Him, to speak where you ought to speak, to address what you ought to address, to stand where you ought to stand, to deny what you ought to deny, to fight what you ought to fight, you will face persecution, and you might suffer some for it. For example, Acts 14, 22. Paul told all the young churches, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. It will not be easy. It will be good, and it will be worth it, but it will not be easy. Jesus said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they hate you, he said, remember they hated me first. Peter said, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. You should expect this. This is normal. And Paul said in this same letter, later on in chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly will be persecuted. But no, not only is persecution inevitable for serious Christians and suffering possible, it's a privilege. The Bible says it's a privilege now, this doesn't have to be something that you feel today, because I'm not primarily speaking to your emotions. I'm not saying something to you that, that might warm your heart today. Oh, yes, I can feel that. That feels so good to know. This is something that you need to know in your mind, something you need to settle in your thinking. It's a privilege for those who endure it faithfully, and that is what God's Word says. Matthew 5.10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me. If they persecute you, they'll persecute me. I mean, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, Jesus says in verse 11, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. This is normal. Why? Why the persecution? Why the pain? So that Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh, in our lives, so that people will see Jesus in us. Colossians 1.24 says, I rejoice in suffering. Philippians 1.29 says, you've been granted not just to be saved, not just to believe. Belief is not the only gift God has given you. Suffering is one. It's been granted to you. And then, of course, 2 Timothy 3.12. If you desire to live godly, you will be. But here's what you need to know. Not only is it inevitable, but if you endure it faithfully, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. I have to be careful when I'm giving a message like this that I don't fall into an unintentional mission trip brag. Not everybody is able to go on mission trips. I get it. Not a everyone is able to take the time and, and bear the expense and, and 
and the physical challenges of going to a place like Kenya on a mission trip, but we much appreciate all of you who support us and, and give faithfully and pray well. But preaching in Kenya and preaching in India and preaching in Alabama have to be the same. The message has to be the same. I would be an unfaithful witness, if not a heretical witness, if I said something to you today in this room, in this space, about what God does and how God works and the worthiness of Christ, the worthwhileness of Christ, if that didn't apply in the exact same way to someone impoverished beyond your imagination in Kenya or someone suffering persecution beyond your imagination in India, Jesus is worth it. And so I may say that with more humility when I'm speaking to brothers in India who have their churches burned down, I say it nonetheless with confidence. Whatever we suffer, not per my experience, not per my emotional experience, not per my purview, but per Scripture, Jesus is worth it. Now let me shift to these next few verses, and I'm going to show you why. If you stick with me, I'm going to show you why. Because you're not going to find many statements in Scripture that give a more beautiful summary of the gospel of grace than what Paul offers Timothy right here. And as you read this passage, something is going to come into sharp focus for you, I pray. You're going to see Timothy's, I mean, you're going to see Paul's perspective on life and death fully explained. How, how do I face down what I face down and remain faithful? How do I deal with what I deal with and remain faithful? Challenges from within and from without. Those I thought were brothers who opposed me and want me dead. Governments that want to kill me. Religions that want to destroy me. Physical, emotional, mental persecution. How do I deal with it? Let's revisit those verses starting in verse 9. The who in verse 9 refers to God at the end of verse 8. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now he's manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So this is what I was appointed to speak on. This is what I was called to do, to be a preacher and teacher, apostle of. For I know, he says in verse 12, whom I have believed, and I'm convinced. I know and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. The God who saves us. I want you to think just for a moment. I want to just pause. you listening to me talk. I want you to think just for a moment. When you read a passage of Scripture that says God saved us, what's the connotation for you? What does that salvation entail? How big of a word is that, that God saved us? Brothers and sisters, this is far more than forgiveness. This is far more than enabling you to go to heaven one day when you die. That's only a portion of this. Forgiveness is only one of the many good gifts of God's grace. I love this statement from John Stott. He says, salvation is a majestic word denoting that comprehensive purpose of God by which he justifies as if we had not sinned. He sanctifies, making us more and more like Christ until that day of perfection and glorifies his people when we're able to, prepared for the enjoyment of God forever. First, pardoning our offenses and accepting us as righteous in his sight through Christ, then progressively transforming us by his spirit into the image of his son until finally we become like Christ in heaven with new bodies and a new world. 
That's salvation. It's all of it. It's a whole ball of wax. This is what he does for us. Look at this picture of grace, this gospel of grace. And consider Paul's understanding of this. And he's painting this majestic picture of what God has done for all believers. And this is the fuel of faithfulness. This is the rocket fuel of endurance. This is the impetus to enduring faithfulness to King Jesus versus this eternal grace. Eternal grace. Before you did or even could do any good works, before you ever thought about believing, before you ever thought about trusting, choosing, before you were born, before history, before time, in eternity God gave us grace. Do you see how Paul would be so blown away by the goodness of God? Do you see how Paul's theology was entirely God-centered, God-focused? There was not an ounce of pride in his own salvation. Before I could do or think anything before time, before eternity, in eternity, God gave grace. It's eternal. But there's also visible grace. The visible grace displayed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, who came to earth, eschewing what was his, his right, his privilege of worship and honor in heaven, surrendering himself to the will of the Father and subjecting himself to the foul treatment of his own creation. And he lived perfectly and sinlessly that he might die sacrificially for our sins, not for his own. The very best there ever was or ever will be, dying as if he were the very worst whoever was or ever will be, but vindicated by God. His life and his claims, his teachings validated by God as he rose from the grave demonstrating that he is in fact who he said he was and in so doing, the Bible says he nullifies death. Death has no power anymore. Jesus' resurrection was not just powerful symbolism. It was not just emotional manipulation. It was a depiction for us to see of the utter and complete decimation of death itself. Your great enemy destroyed by Christ who is now raised and promises life everlasting to all who believe. He enables immortality. This is visible grace. And this grace is a generous grace. A generous grace in the call of the gospel. This gospel message It says, Jesus abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the good news, this good news that Paul is a teacher, preacher, apostle of, this good news that he's charged Timothy to be a representative and missionary of, a messenger of, this good news that we bear witness to as his ambassadors, bears witness to a generous grace and the call of the gospel we're offered all the riches of God's grace in Christ if we too will repent and believe. And he's generous And he's calling people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he's singing the gospel in every place and to every person. And those who respond to this gospel of grace with faith and repentance experience transforming grace. The gospel has power. Its effect is certain. Transforming grace. Those who believe are progressively and certainly sanctified. And God is relentlessly committed to the sanctification of His own. Because those whom He calls, He will sanctify. He promises to do so. They're sanctified by His Spirit for fellowship with Him now, service to Him now, enjoyment with Him forever. 
the sanctification work, it's a transforming grace. And even as He shapes us for eternity, the work that God does in His own, marking those who are His by His Holy Spirit, is a sustaining grace. That's why Paul said, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that He's able. He's able. He's able to guard unto that day what has been entrusted to me. He's able to keep it. What He began in me, And what he began in you, he'll carry it to completion. I know this. I am convinced of this. I'm certain of this. That there's a sustaining grace that God promises to complete this work until perfection happens and glorification results. This is God's grace. And to that, when you see the vastness of God's grace, you see the generosity of it, how unworthy of it we are, but yet we receive it. We've heard this good news and responded to it how it changes us and keeps us, secures us, then you can understand why Paul would say this in conclusion. That's why I suffer as I do. When you and I try to figure out a theology of suffering, how does suffering fit in the Christian life? And we pull suffering out of its context. And we just look at suffering by itself, apart from its causes, apart from its effects, We won't understand it. It doesn't doesn't fit in our modern Christian mindset that we should ever suffer for this. In fact, even our eschatology for some of us suggests that we won't ever have to. That we'll simply be taken out before any suffering comes. And yet, that reality doesn't bear witness to the suffering of our brothers and sisters in so many parts of the world. Nor does it bear witness to what Scripture proclaims. But when we understand the context, when I see God's grace like this, before time began, so generous towards me, so good and so life-changing, so certain and life-sustaining, that's why I can suffer like I do. Does Paul's suffering make a bit more sense now? So in order to fully appreciate the power of these words, you have to keep in mind the person who has penned them. Who's the person writing so confidently about life and death here? Who's the person writing so certainly about the abolition of death and the granting of immortality? Who is this person? It's Paul facing imminent death himself. It's Paul in the gallows, knowing that the call could come at any moment for his head. Paul knowing the specter of his own end is just like a shadow, so close. And yet Paul, who knows the death sentence will soon come, triumphantly proclaims, Christ has abolished death. That's not philosophical. That's not hypothetical. That's not theoretical in that moment. That's a Christian with a deep-seated confidence in the grace of God staring down his own end and saying God is good. And maybe the best mark of any of us most defining statement that any of us will ever make with our lives will actually be upon our own deaths and how we face that moment. You see, Paul had genuine, life-sustaining, endurance-causing, joy-giving, fear-defeating faith, all because of God's grace. I know, he says, I know whom I have believed, And I'm convinced that he's able.
to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Ultimately, I give you the same concluding statement that I have probably given you in one form or another so many times. It's not the only reason at all why you should believe the good offer of the gospel in Christ Jesus. Why you should embrace the plan of God who offers you forgiveness and salvation, who offers you a changed life and eternal hope. Why you should abandon confidence in yourself or in your own goodness or why you should turn from rebellion against Him or unbelief of Him. Why you should turn from sin and rebellion against Him and surrender to Him. It's not the only reason why you should do those things, but it's certainly prominent in this text. The gospel is worthy of all of our confidence because it's true. Because it's true. That's the message of every messenger since the dawn of the church. This is true. Pass this on. This is true. This is real. This is the king we serve. This is the king who rules. This is the king who is returning. This is the king that you should be proud to be adopted by, that you should be proud to be in the family of. So I ask you these questions in conclusion. Do you know this king? Do you know him? Not information about him, not the story of him. Do you know this king who is to all who are his a father of love and generosity and goodness, mercy beyond our sin, grace beyond our sinfulness. Do you know him? Are you convinced that he holds your life in his hand? That the future, as well as the present, is under his control? And one day, one day, every eye will see him. All eyes will behold him. And our faithfulness to him on that day, at whatever cost, whatever challenge, whenever we're tempted to disassociate, whenever we're tempted to play it down, whenever we're we're tempted to not go there with people, to not open our Bible in public, to not have a conversation that we ought to have, to not ask hard questions of people that we care about, to, to not live boldly, faithfully to King Jesus, no matter what the norms or even the laws of our time dictate to boldly identify with him. And if it costs us something, we say, it's fine. I'm not seeking to suffer. I don't want to be a martyr. But I don't want to stand before the king on that day and say, I was unwilling to identify. I I, I was unwilling. I read the story of a missionary this week. In their first trip after some training um, into the Middle East, in an area where violent, virulent, Islam was practiced, just decimating anything in its path. And she said, I was, I was amazed, I was amazed at how publicly and proudly the believers in that area identified with Christ. I thought it would be the opposite. But I saw people wearing crosses in a place where it means something and it will cost you something. I saw people with scripture verses festooned about their houses I saw people wearing bracelets with Scripture. I saw people carrying their Bibles in a place where just 10, 15, 20 yards away from them is someone who would love to slit their throat for nothing more than that infidelity to their false God. 
and yet they said, we're with Jesus. How can we do any less? Do you know or are you convinced? And it's because of that grace, that gospel of grace. So I ask you one simple question today. Not theoretically, not hypothetically, but in where you live, where you go to school, where you work, the people you're related to, the paths that you cross, will you be proudly His? Will you be proudly His? I don't know what that might cost you. But by the same token, I can't even imagine what that will be worth to you one day in eternity. Let's pray. Father, you have not given us a spirit of fear. We, fear, we feel fearful sometimes. We feel anxious and nervous and shy and reluctant and, and, and afraid. And we don't want to be canceled. We don't want to be disliked. We don't want to be uninvited. Father, may we be reminded, not, not just by my words, but by your Spirit, that you did not give us a spirit of fear, but power, love, self-control. Father, now I ask for our sake that you would give each of us the power to accomplish what you want for us. What role you want us to play. What word you would have us speak what lane you'd have us to fill, what, what task you'd have us to accomplish, Father, that you would give us the strength to do that, and we would not shirk back because we think we don't have it in us, because we have you in us. We have you. Father, give us the love to desire what you will. May we love truth. May we love righteousness. May we love the name of Jesus. May we love the gospel. May we love the people that you've placed in our lives enough to tell them the truth. May we love what you love, desire what you desire. Father, give us the self-control to be faithful. To be faithful. For there never to be a doubt which team we're on, which army we're in, which king we serve. We're with Jesus. Lord, may that be our mark always, that we're with Jesus. And Father, will you draw people to yourself through our witness, verbal, bold, confident, humble, but certain witness? Father, will you use us to make you known? Will you use us to bring glory to your name? Father, may we be today and always, proudly, proudly yours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.